Ricky, awesome to be here on the show. Uh, looking forward to diving in here. Awesome, man. Hey, uh, tell us a little bit about your career journey and how did you end up in tech? <sighs> yeah, how long we got? Uh, how long do you want to take? <laughs> the, I'll just, I'll, I'll go. But sometimes, I, I think for a lot of people that might be listening to this episode, they may not know that much about me. So maybe I'll go into a little bit deeper than I normally go into. So I studied uh, engineering, biomedical engineering in college. I think that is a critical part of the way that I think as it's now come through all the way into like marketing and go-to-market and revenue operations that I have its understanding of engineering. I was coding microprocessors and like running signal analyses in college. And I thought I wanted to design medical devices and sensors. And so that's sort of like how my career started. I got out of college and quickly realized that I didn't want to be sitting in a lab writing code every day for eight hours and sitting there and not interacting with humans. It just wasn't my like personality. So I quickly sort of got moved out of that and went into product management. Um, and the companies I was doing product management for was a lot of like, it was a lot of hardware B2B companies. And so I started to do product management with them, which in that, those companies mean a lot more pro, like product development and a lot less product marketing. And so I started spending a lot of time in product development, putting together the business case of the company asking me, should we invest this $3 million to go and build this tooling and actually launch this product? or not, and go out and talk to customers, assess the market, calculate the market size, do market research, understand the competitive landscape, and come back at like 23 years old and be like, no, we shouldn't invest money to do this. And then the company actually listening to me and not making those investments, I thought was really interesting. But I very quickly found my way into executive level discussions like that inside of my professional career. I spent a stint for about two years in manufacturing process optimization, lean, Six Sigma, this company builds millions of sensors every year. The assembly line, the process needs to be running smoothly. If we can figure out how to optimize this process or change this, we can make 5% extra gross margin, or we can sell way more goods, or we can in change our delivery times and improve our cash flow. That type of work, I think, is incredibly relevant now as we think about running a holistic revenue system, having someone that understands Six Sigma and process optimization and looking at the system holistically, not in each individual part and optimizing for that. So I think there's a lot of the thinking around that that I have that I bring into, I would call just generating revenue. After that, I spent quite a bit of time working at companies that were medical technology companies. And I think the fascinating thing about medical technology when you compare it to SaaS is that the clinical data around the products and the outcomes those products deliver determines whether or not physicians use the products. It's called evidence-based medicine. And so a big part of a strategy for those types of companies is we need to do randomized clinical trials and we need to have strong clinical data so we can make these claims in compliance with the FDA. And so that physicians understand the data and know that if they use the product in this way, they will get these types of outcomes based on statistics and data. And when we look at the SaaS industry, there's just no thought around that. And we look at marketers that use marketing tools, there's no thought around that. Has there been any studies done to say that using this tool is better than doing it manually or doing the way we do it right now or doing it a different way? We just don't think about that. So I bring this level of using large scale aggregated data to inform the decisions that we make and go to market, just like physicians manage the decisions that they make for individual patients. And I think we need a lot more of that in the B2B revenue generating landscape. I think we need a lot more in science and data and a lot less opinions and past experiences. Like, oh, I did cold calling at Salesforce when I was there at 2007. It'll work again if we do it now in 2023. Or our last company, HubSpot, that I worked at when I was a senior manager grew and was so successful because of their SEO strategy. We should do SEO at our company 10 years later because it worked for them. And taking it from a past experience that is correlation, not causation, there is no way that you can say that HubSpot was successful because of the SEO strategy. You can say HubSpot was successful and they did SEO, but there's no way to create actual causation that SEO was the reason HubSpot is the company it is today. 
And just logical thought would tell you it's definitely not the primary reason. There's a lot of reasons, product, market, the events they did, the brand they built, the executive leaders they have, the people that work for the company. There's a million confounding variables that people don't take into consideration when they decide, what should I do in go to market? And then I actually started doing this with companies. So I was an in-house employee at B2B companies, medical technology companies, building and running what at the time I would call a demand generation system. How do we get buyers in our market to want to buy in meetings with our sales team, converting to pipeline and converting to revenue? That's how I've always thought about it. So I did that with companies and I was lucky to work at companies where there was only three people in the department in marketing at these companies. When I was doing it, I got to pull all the levers. I got to look at all the data. I got to do all the jobs. I sent the emails. I hosted the podcast. I actually built the Facebook ads. I made the creative and created, directed the ads. I built and designed the website. I worked with our CMO on the messaging. I looked at all the data and I reported to the CEO on what the data was like and how we should think about budget. I made recommendations for budget allocation. I did it all. And it was one of the best experiences of my life because almost no marketer ever gets that experience. It's not like you're doing your little thing and you see the company getting better. So you think that your little thing's doing it. I'm doing all the things. I'm seeing that things are working. And then I, because I'm doing all the things, I can deduce what are the actual causes to this. I was incredibly lucky to go through that experience. and I'm very grateful for it. And then the last five years of my career, on the back of that insight, uh, there's an entirely new way to think about our revenue data, how we optimize our revenue system, how we execute and deploy massive marketing investments to drive business growth and revenue, taking those key insights that there are different and better ways to do this, and then building my company around it starting in 2019. And then over the past four and a half years that I've been at it, we've worked with more than 250 B2B companies. Many of those companies are going to fall into a what I would call like a critical part of the growth journey, which is 300 employees to 2000 employees, which is also typically very correlated with when the MQL hamster wheel truly breaks with scale. So I think that's where we where we fit in. But we've also worked with quite a few early stage companies successful. So I just want to make sure that people realize that it's relevant. And through all of the experience of working with all those companies, I have gotten significantly accelerated learnings, pattern recognition, data, trends, what are people doing, what's working, what's not. It's almost like the qualitative part of science. All scientific discoveries start with one person trying something and seeing a signal. And then they try and make it repeatable, or they try and go to a different person and do the same thing and see if they get the same result. All And that's basically what I've been doing for the past four years. And so I can see all the different patterns in these companies and get these insights that other people don't see because I've seen the pattern at 20 companies, but they only see it at their own company. So they think that they suck. And what I see is, no, what you're doing sucks, not you suck. Because I can see that it's not working at 20 companies, not just in, at your company. And now the next evolution is taking it from those pattern recognition signals that I see to transforming it to the equivalent of what people do with randomized controlled trials. Randomized controlled trials have 200 patients in it. What are we gonna do? We're gonna take 200 companies in it. What are we gonna do? We're gonna do meta-analyses on their data. We're gonna find the patterns and trends. We're gonna use data science around it. We're gonna be able to look and understand correlation and causation and patterns using large scale standardized data, which has never been done before, I think is incredibly inspiring. And I think will create the innovation engine that B2B go-to-market needs. B2B go-to-market has not fundamentally changed in more than 15 years. We've had new technology, there's new data around it, but basically what we're doing, we're getting leads, we're cold calling people, we're doing the same stuff with more tools and data around it. And there's also the operating models that companies use. So whether they're using the 2012 version of the demand waterfall or the Topo double funnel as the core operating model they use, which is basically the MQL hamster wheel with an account-based funnel, or moving to what the new serious decision ones that's purely account-based. Those are the operating models that companies adopt consciously or subconsciously about what they do. And none of those things have been updated in more than five years. And so why are we not at a place in go-to-market where there's a go-to-market operating system and it gets updates every two weeks? or every day instead of every five years? And why aren't things changing and how we structure it and how we look at the data and how we think and the processes and the measurement points. And I just think there's so much opportunity to use all of the, I'd go through all that and saying, all of the past experience has oddly led me right to this place.
in what I'm working on. And all of the past experience, I recognize that no one has had the exact same career path as me. And if you look at my career path on paper, you'd say, what the fuck is this guy doing? <laughs> like, what is he doing? There's just a squiggly line all around. What is he doing? It's very oddly interesting that you need all those experience you need. You need to understand the clinical data and how it's used with physicians. You need to have the experience in the manufacturing facility and optimizing those processes to then bring that into how you look at the data and the overall system from a RevOps perspective. You need to have the engineering background so you understand statistics and correlation versus causation and those types of things. And then you need to bring all that stuff together and use it in a way that's never been done before. And I just see a really core problem in the B2B go-to-market space. I imagine that there's a similar problem in the B2C go-to-market space. I've just chosen not to focus there, honestly, because I just think there's a bigger opportunity in B2B. I think the problems are bigger and I think less people are focused there. So it's just a better strategic decision to be focused there. And that's a little bit of a view about how I got here. There was a very sad period in our previous history, Ricky and I were marketing reported to me and I was in charge of marketing. And I'm not a marketer by any stretch, but I am a man of science and I started in science. So you actually made me understand marketing for a small, very small second there actually made sense. I should have talked to you four years ago and I would have got it. As you're using science and data to build refine labs and go into companies, what do you see as things that are a disadvantage of the way everyone does it? Because like I said, we all pretty much do the same thing. We've been doing it the same way for a long time. Yes, because a lot of people listening might be thinking, hey, I run A-B tests at my company. I look at my data. I'm doing science. So I just kind of want to explain this distinction here. You are doing science. You're just doing qualitative science with a sample size of one. And so how did people figure out that smoking cigarettes kills you? They didn't follow one patient around and said, did this person die or not? They looked at thousands or tens of thousands of people and then recognized that there was a pure correlation and a cause, actual a causation between smoking cigarettes and premature death. Now, in order to do that in revenue or in a B2B setting, it's by considering a patient to be a company and say, we look at 200 companies, we looked at all the things that they were doing, all 200 companies run content syndication, here was the outcome of all the 200 companies that ran content syndication, and then you can say, content syndication, when used this way, gets you this outcome based on these statistics. And when you only run a sample size of one, you'll never get to that level of statistical confidence, which is the core difference here and why I think that what we're doing is very impactful because you should be able to have powered studies where everything is repeatable, which is really incredible to think about. You you talked, there was a lot in, in what you said, the bits that I picked out, Using this data that you're pulling from a wider range, which other people can't do if they're sitting inside their company, you know, will be giving you a whole bunch of information. But when you look at what people are doing, and like you said, a lot of the status quo stayed very similar over the last 50 years. What are the main disadvantages you're seeing in that as you're seeing data? What do you see as a weakness in what we're all currently doing? So the current weaknesses that I see, and I'm going to communicate this with the hedge or with the caveat that a majority of the data that I'm looking at is for companies that are greater than 500 employees. Yeah. And so therefore, I'm not going to be able to say that this is that I can't confidently say this should be relevant to a company that has 50 employees. It might be, but I don't know for sure. So here are some of the things that I'm seeing. The data model that companies use is MQL, SQL, SQL, closed one. And they've been using that because of the serious decisions demand waterfall. Now the lead and contact object is built into the opportunities. The sales methodologies have a qualified stage. And so everything that is built downstream, the tech and the processes get built around that core underlying framework of MQL, SQL, SQL. The core problem in this model is that it's subjective. A marketer can decide what an MQL means. A SDR has to make a subjective call about whether this person is BANT qualified or not. A qualified opportunity, a sales rep makes a call about whether it's qualified using their best judgment, and it's all subjective and not based on data at all. In a new model, I think that whether an opportunity is qualified or not should be based on real historical performance and win rates. That should determine whether it's qualified, not whether the salesperson thinks it is or not. So I think moving from a subjective definitions of the stages to performance-based objective data to determine the stages would be a huge leap forward for the industry. I think that companies that I interact with often because of how the new account-based marketing and demand waterfall have been framed by analyst firms and vendors, 
that most companies have moved to use primarily an influenced revenue model to determine what's working and what's not in their marketing. And then every time I talk to a CMO, what do I hear? I spend $15 million a year on marketing and the reports that I look at says that everything's working and I have no idea what to do. And I'm trying to figure out my 2024 plan. I got to cut my budget by 15% next year. So the aha here is two years ago, nobody was doing this. Now everybody's doing it and it's not working for anybody, at least not the ones that I interact with. And it's clear that if you're using this in this way, you end up in analysis paralysis where you don't really make any bold moves or strategic decisions or big changes, which is why you get this go-to-market that's in homeostasis or it's stagnant. So that's another one. At the tactical level, I think more early stage companies are going, everyone's talking about this, but I think it might be more pronounced in early stage companies that a lot of people are challenging the SDR model for the first time in a long time. Maybe the first time ever, actually. Maybe this is the first time it's ever been challenged since people started doing it 12 years ago. I think that it's smart. I'm seeing larger companies on the bigger end of the spectrum that my the data that I'm seeing shows you shouldn't shut off outbound, at least at a, at a bigger company outbound, like delivering 20 to 40% of revenue. You shouldn't shut it down. But instead of having a one-to-one -one SDR to AE ratio, it should be three-to-one or four-to-one or five-to-one. And that what happened during the boom times is that we just didn't care about cost efficiency at all, which is now what everybody cares about. And we way overhired this role. And now we need to make a correction because pipeline is down and it's because the market is slower and we need to correct our costs to be in line with the performance of the business right now. And so I think that that bigger companies are deciding to reduce that function, which I think is smart. I don't think that eliminating the function is the right conversation just yet. I'm not sure it ever is for that matter. I think it's about thinking about starting with a blank sheet of paper and saying we need to do business development. How do we do business development in 2024? I think that's a better discussion to have. And I think if you had that discussion, you wouldn't have 22-year-old people with auto dialers doing that shit. And then on the lower end, I think some companies might be on the verge of giving up on outbound. The difference here is in the size and scale. And so the 500-person company that has a good brand, has a product that people already like, has a good customer base, has a decent, at least marketing infrastructure and brand, and maybe their category is known those companies are going to have be more successful in running outbound sales than a company that's 15 employees has no brand their website sucks they have three customers they've been in business for nine months those companies are going to really struggle with outbound and so i think on the earlier side of the spectrum i think companies will have even more pressure to figure out what they're going to do with that those investments what it really is we're spending millions of dollars a year on these people trying to drive growth. If we're not getting growth out of it, we need to figure out how to reallocate the budget to drive growth. Hey, Chris, totally guilty, right? Having run a business that was 700 plus people, right? I could keep going with it, but yeah, you decide. MQL, SQL, tofu, the whole thing. That's all we ever focused on. The struggle that I found was actually in moving to the newer model that you speak of. Even if you could get agreement within the organization, there were still a lot of challenges at the board level, the reporting, trying to get everyone on the same boat. How do you actually go about doing that? That's the bit I want to know. So what is the core challenge here? The core challenge is that there really isn't a formal new model yet. That's the core challenge. I've been evangelizing, thinking about things differently, and we've been working on figuring it out with companies in real life. And we have processes and ways of thinking and ways of reporting we have not yet published, but we're in the process of rolling that all up to say, this is how you think about your operating model. These are the stages that you're optimizing for. This is the data model that you're going to use. This is how you're going to measure things. These are how things are calculated. This is how it moves downstream into revenue strategy. Here are the frequencies that you report. Here is the data that you report at on a standardized way. Here's what you show the board. That's what we need. So there's a couple of key elements in there about why a lot of companies struggle with the change. Without actually having a tangible new model, people will always regress back to what they feel is safe, especially for executives that aren't necessarily truly involved in go-to-market, CEO, CFO, other ones like that. They need to see something from an analyst firm or some company that they trust that shows them what they should do, which was made by a bunch of people in a boardroom, not in real life, implementing it with companies. And so I think there's another underlying theme here that right now, when you think about the strategy, it goes, an analyst firm develops your operating model, the demand waterfall, 
then there is no standardized data model. So you're just using MQL, SQL, SQL. It's subjective and it's different in every company. And that's clear in the data that I look at. So no standardized data model. Then you go into revenue strategy. So the execs and maybe some consultants you hire go and figure out how are we going to achieve these KPIs, MQL, SQL, SQL. What are the things that we're going to do to achieve these KPIs? Then they decide what tools they're going to need to buy in order to measure those things and to execute those things effectively. So then they go out and buy the tools around how to get more MQLs and SQLs and SQOs. And then they have their in-house team and their agency team use those tools and things to optimize for those standard core KPIs. And you can see the baton passing between an analyst firm that doesn't execute in real life to no data model to executives and then through the tech vendors and the tools. What I'm calling out here is there's no feedback loop from execution to the operating frameworks. And the feedback loop can't just be qualitative, like we implemented your ABM waterfall and we're happy and doing great and our ACV is up 7%. That is not enough. There has to be a feedback loop through a standardized data model that looks at a lot of companies that then updates the operating model as if it was an operating system. And so the data model and the operating model should be updating all the time, new features, new things, all companies run on it, they can get benchmarks out of it. And then it pushes into execution, it pushes back, you get individual learnings and you compare that against a large set of companies. That is how companies are going to run their go-to-market, where your go-to-market engine gets smarter every day, not every five years. And I really want to hammer home this point. The only way your go-to-market truly gets smarter is with large-scale aggregated data, comparing a lot of companies like you to your own performance and finding the trends and patterns. You can make incremental changes with your own data, but you'll still not, without having the broader view you'll never like get real accelerated innovation. Companies have been looking at their own data and making decisions about this since we've had digital innovation. For the past 20 years, they've been looking at at least some data in an ERP, and then we moved into a CRM. Now we have marketing automation and a trillion other tools. Companies have been looking at their own data and making strategy decisions the whole time. And do they get smarter? Yeah, they get incrementally smarter over time, but there's no breakthrough changes because you just validated at one company, not a large scale of companies. So I think there's a couple of things there, but to answer your question directly, yeah. So to some extent, you're actually putting real science and data behind what we, when we raise capital from large private equity, et cetera, is part of what we're looking for, right? We're like, they're like, oh, we've got a thousand companies that do what you do, Saston, and we're going to give you all this experience. And then you get the uh, this six companies have done this before, but again, it's still subjective data because it's not actually pushed out of a data set which is giving you information. It's the partner that might be talking to you, going, "Oh, you should do outbound now because we've seen people do outbound." You're going to turn what they sell to some extent as gains. You're going to get as a company raising capital into real data that's driven amongst a whole bunch of stuff that can help you actually make decisions. Because to some extent, when I raise capital, that's part of what we were looking for, right? Like people who've seen this multiple times with multiple companies that you assume are looking at data across all of them and aggregating that and then giving you that to help you make decisions. Yeah. I mean, if whether you're thinking about raising capital or deploying capital, either way, this holds true that when you look at a P&L, you can pick up a P&L from a different company and you can pretty much understand it in less than 10 minutes, probably almost immediately, right? You're looking top line, bottom line, category. It's then there's a standard around it. it's called gap generally accepted accounting principles so that everyone follows the principles and then everyone can look at PLs and understand and be able to assess them in a way why can we not do that with our revenue data that is the question why is every single salesforce system homegrown why could we never compare it across 50 companies in a portfolio and understand who is doing the best who's doing the worst even the least innovative industries are doing this so i'll give you an example in a hospital network let's pick scripts in san diego Hospital network, they have a bunch of different hospitals in there. There's 50 of them. All the tools are connecting into what they call an electronic medical record system. All the data that gets pushed in is standardized. Then that the one hospital then shares their data with the other 50 hospitals. And then somebody back at HQ looks at all those hospitals and says, hey, these two hospitals over here are having their patients survive this type of cancer at 50% better than all other hospitals. What are these people doing that is helping these people survive so much that all our other hospitals aren't doing? Let's make sure that all the other hospitals then implement their best practices so we improve patient outcomes. Or the people that are entering the emergency room at this hospital are dying seven times faster, seven times more. What are we do not doing here that we need to go in and correct? And I think that for a PE firm, that is the holy grail. Yeah. 
I think there's a lot of merit to looking at that way. But I just want, I sort of want people think that tech and SaaS are like the most innovative industries out there. And they are in some ways, but in other ways, they're like significantly farther behind than what they think about as regulated or traditional industries like medical, healthcare, med tech, stuff like that. Pharma. Yeah. That's really cool. I mean, the best help we ever got was that sort of stuff that you're talking about, right? When the PE firms that we're dealing with would be like, hey, here's aggregated data across all of our portfolios and this is rankings and this is things people are doing good and not doing good. And okay, it wasn't like you said. That's real science. It's not apples to apples yet because in reality, lots of it is subjective. So it's subjective data going in. But at least it gave you something to look at across a wider range. It was something I was always like, oh, data and that's not just from our company but from a wider range so you can try to see hey is there something we're missing here is there something we're not doing better is there something we should be deep diving in and mm-hmm. the better that gets i think the faster especially for your plus 500 people company the faster you can actually look at where you should be investing your money and what you should be driving down and you know towards the back end of my career that stuff i found super powerful from from the PE firms that i knew and, and spoke to Yeah. So it's just highlighting the difference in the power between qualitative science and quantitative science or N equals one sample size versus N equals 2000. It completely changes the validity of the science and the advancement. When we start, we didn't do clinical trials in the United States until like 1942 or something, not like real ones. Since we've done that, life expectancy for humans has grown significantly. And so the application of that type of science has rapidly advanced the lifetime. Like a lot of people were thinking they're going to die at 56 back in the day. My grandma smoked for 40 years and she's still kicking it at like 95. <laughs> I got to call her. It's her birthday today, actually. She's 95. Oh, yeah. So the application of true science and the advancement of science can drive significant overall advancement, which is what I'm excited about. So I knew I did my science degree for a reason, Ricky. <laughs> yeah, it's paying off everyone. I was like, I don't even know why I got an engineering degree, but now I know. We're the oddballs. Scientists and I'm a fellow engineer, so I can relate to some of the decoding that you're talking about, Chris. Many people like myself even will actually then say, that's all good, Chris and Sean, everything you you say makes sense. But my personas, the ICP that I sell to is so vastly different to your model, your B2B stuff, you're selling it to others, right? I'm selling it to trade. I'm selling it to contractors. So therefore, your model is therefore irrelevant to me. What do you say to that? That's why we do the science Every person's different. Every person that smokes is different. They live a different life. They have different genetics. They're 100% different, just like every company is different. And that's why you do science, because with a larger scale of companies, you eliminate confounding variables and you say definitively, what is the cause of this? And you might find, hey, when you market to the construction industry and you do this, the outcomes are different than if you do it for everyone. Maybe you find that just sometimes when a patient has a condition, they take a drug, something different happens than normal. Um, So you could find those things, but that's the point of doing the science. And what do you need to do the science? You need large-scale standardized data as the first step. You need an operating model, large-scale standardized data, and then somebody objective that's going to be using data science to look at the data. And then you need a peer review layer where peers are reviewing those types of things before they go out to make sure that it's scientifically valid. Makes sense. Hey, Chris, I know we were talking about the larger companies, 500 plus. I want to bring you back to the early stage, people that we often talk to nowadays. Let's do it. So if I'm an early stage founder, I've just got my business to 5 million ARR. I've got a reasonably solid product. It's got a good roadmap. I've got a sales team, which is made up of outbound and field sales. Marketing hasn't really played a big part in my success so far. Where do I even begin? It's 2023. It's back into 2023. With everything that's moving and shifting, where do I start? So first off, shout out to you, 5 million ARR, one huge accomplishment, especially in early stage SaaS. So first off, shout out to you. Second off, even more of a shout out to you to do that in the last whatever, three, five years or less without any marketing. Shout out to you. That means you got something. Hopefully you've gotten this far without marketing, which means that's a good thing. But what got you here is not going to get you there necessarily, or what got you here is not going to get you there very fast. or very efficiently, maybe. So if you don't do marketing, you might still get to 20 million ARR. You still, you know, I know companies that are 100 million ARR, and they have not really invested at all in marketing. But maybe it took them 30 years. I'm not sure that everyone that's trying to build a venture funding company is trying to work on that type of timeline. The reality that we need to think about as I'm a founder too, we're building tech and products right now. So I'm kind of like you, 
we've chosen to build a services firm as the, a funding mechanism to build the technology rather than raise VC. That's really the only difference here. But acknowledging the differences between how a buyer bought something in a B2B environment in 2012 versus how they buy something today will help you start to see this stuff. In 2012, most B2B companies did not update their website. B2B buyers were not using social networks, were not connected with their peers, were not in Slack communities. LinkedIn didn't even have a content medium. I'm not even sure you could send messages at that point. There were no review sites. You couldn't get pricing online. It's hard to determine. If you were looking at one vendor, it was hard to figure out who the even alternatives and competitors were back then. If you wanted to see new technology releases, you would go to the major conference for your specialty and peruse the booths to see who was, because a lot of people would do product announcements at those places because everybody had to be there back then to learn about things, which is not the same way it is today. <laughs> and you can see how I'm describing. And I was there. I did it. I went to the shows in 2012. I saw those things. And now we look at what it's like today. And all of those dynamics that I mentioned to you today have been completely flipped on their head. There's an absolutely no reason that you should launch a product at a trade show today. Most people, there's a million other ways that people can discover things. There are social networks everywhere that connect peers and professionals, not only in a consumer environment, but also in a professional environment. We have private communities now for like CMOs or CFOs or demand gen directors or everybody. There's a private community and a Discord or a Slack or a LinkedIn group where they can go and they can get information from their peers. B2B company and B2B buyers use the internet to find basically everything. They know how to use the internet. They know how to get all of the information. They know how to basically get all the information they need to make a purchasing decision without ever talking to your salesperson. And so acknowledging that a majority of the customer's buying process is completed before they talk to your sales team would lead you to the conclusion that maybe we should start doing some marketing so that while those buyers are doing those steps, we can influence them along the way and we can educate them. Or maybe by doing it well, we can move people that were not thinking about buying stuff and then move them into considering buying at a much accelerated rate than if we did nothing and then our market is bigger and more people are buying and more people know about us. And then when they talk to their sale, our sales team, our sales team isn't telling them the company history and the stuff, basic stuff that they shouldn't need to know. And then our sales team is helping them solve their business problem and sell the deal to people that understand the problem, that have seen it in their business, that have probably had discussions about it at whatever level is necessary to get people on board with this. All of those steps in the buying process are happening before they talk to your sales team. If you are not involved up there, you are playing at a massive disadvantage in your market and for your company. And I believe that we're on the verge of it being borderline irresponsible to not be heavily focused on that part as founders. Historically, founders have said, I'm going to focus on product and I'm going to focus on sales until we get to a million ARR or something like that. And whenever we need to do marketing, I'm just going to hire a director of marketing or a growth marketing manager and hope that they figure it out. And that is not the play anymore. You need to figure it out as the founder. You need to figure it out. You need to figure out how to host the podcast. You need to understand the measurements. You need to understand the customers. You need to drive the story into the market. I get that not all founders do it and not all successful founders you don't have to do it to be successful historically, but damn, I think it really increases the probability of your success when you do. Mm. Just like you understand your P&L and your finance and you understand the technical roadmap of your product and you can weigh in at those at at least a educated level that you need to have at least that level of base knowledge on the current best practices about how to execute marketing for your thing. Not the best practices that were published in 2018, not the best practices that come out in tech vendor ebooks that are biased, the real best practices. I couldn't be more direct with my message here. If you're trying to get your company to 50 or 100 million ARR before you even have a chance at exiting or IPOing or whatever your end outcome is, that not having this in place significantly compromises your ability to do that in a cost effective way. Could you still do it? Yeah, but I think you're going to spend three to four times as much as you scale out sales headcount and SDRs and predictable revenue that you literally just break down the ROI of those investments. You get degradation of ROI. 
And the whole point of marketing at scale is to blend down the cost of customer acquisition, that you still have a sales expense, but that as you add incremental investments in marketing, the incremental investments in marketing have a higher ROI than the blended ROI that you currently have, therefore blending down your overall customer acquisition cost. That's what marketing is supposed to do at scale. At the beginning stages, you got to figure out how to get traction, get people to, to know you. And it's more than just knowing you. I think a lot of people think about brand awareness. There's a big difference between somebody knowing your company and wanting to buy your company. And we need to transition the idea of brand awareness to demand creation. People want to buy our stuff. Because in B2B, most often, especially as I come from like a med tech background where you can only say things that you have data to back up, but these types of sales can be very logical and data-driven and objective. Hey, you have this business problem. When you have this business problem, usually these types of important business metrics look like this. Do your metrics look like this? Yeah, sir, they do. Okay, your metrics look like this. We have worked with all these companies, and as they do this, then this metric goes like this, which then makes the business go like this. So I think just educate, have, taking a different approach to the prospective customer education process, I think has huge merits. And looking at what other industries do where the sales of the products are objective based on data, I think is actually an interesting place to get it from. So yeah, those are a couple thoughts there. Yeah, I agree. The game has changed significantly. Mm -hmm. I read one of your posts, Chris, in recent weeks where you talked about the creation of all-bound sales velocity, which is quite different to the traditional pipeline velocity, right? Can you expand on that? How does it work? What data does it analyze? And where did the thought even come from? Yeah, so the actual underlying technicals of this are very complicated, and I'm not going to try and explain them here. So let me just explain. Let's take out the all-bound, and let's just talk sales velocity. When you get into all-bound, then there starts to get a lot of complexities that I don't want to explain right now. So sales velocity. What is sales velocity? It's similar to the velocity of an object. How much pipeline is moving through your funnel to closed one over time? And it combines the four core growth lever metrics that you have to increase growth of your company. You have, you can decrease sales cycle lengths, you can increase win rates, you can increase the amount of opportunities that you have, or you can increase the deal sizes. Those are the four levers that you have for growth. Sales velocity takes all four of those into account and creates a calculation of dollars. We usually calculate it in dollars per quarter. And it's a trending measurement to understand what is the velocity of our pipeline. And then you can look at the underlying four metrics that I just listed there. And if your trends are going down quarter over quarter, you can then go underneath that and diagnose why are they going down. Deal sizes, sales cycles are getting longer, win rates are going down, we're not generating as much pipeline. Usually some combination of those different things, but it helps you isolate what the actual problem is. And just knowing that win rate is going down doesn't actually help you isolate the root cause. It identifies a metric that helps you focus in on what the root cause would be, but win rates are going down could be you just had a sales leader turnover and there's no leadership. It could be that your two best reps left. It could be that marketing started this new uh, MQL program that totally sucks and you're driving a bunch of shitty pipeline, like giving away gift cards for people to sit on demos. So you don't really have the root cause, but it definitely helps you quickly diagnose and start to hone in on why is this happening. I think combining several core business level metrics as a way to align the revenue team I think is really smart. So you basically have revenue team metrics, close one revenue quarter over quarter, all bound hero pipeline, created quarter over quarter that can come from partner, outbound, marketing. It doesn't matter at this level. You have all bound sales velocity as a key indicator, and then you have blended marketing ROI. Again, standardized pipeline and revenue. How much pipeline do we create for every dollar we spend in marketing and how much revenue do we generate for every dollar we spend on marketing? I think over time, you could assess that against the entire go-to-market, but companies already have that number mm. because they look at CAC. So it's like the inverse of CAC almost. Yeah. And those are the key revenue team metrics that you're looking at to assess the health of your engine and then pair that with the benchmarks to say, this is how we're performing on these standardized things. This is how other companies like us perform because I see it a lot of times and I see it in both cases. I see super high performing companies and marketing teams thinking that their marketing sucks. And I see super low performing marketing and revenue teams thinking that their marketing and revenue is amazing. And so the benchmarks really help as a barometer here to understand, yes, I understand these are my data. I get 7x 
pipeline for every dollar I spend on marketing. But is that good or bad? I think having real standardized data to do that will help companies level set in terms of overall performance. I'm hopeful that it also decreases the reliance on attribution by shifting the focus more toward revenue team KPIs than what team did what. I'm hopeful that we shift the conversation here to how is our revenue team performing, not what did marketing or SDR source that. So that's a byproduct that hopefully we can get to. Love that. Coming back to benchmarking, I've got one last question for you there, Chris. In terms of pricing on the website, that's a question that we often feel. Should the B2B SaaS companies actually list all their pricing on the website or should they gate it? Oof. Is there an answer or is it too complicated or does it depend on the personas? Does it depend on who you're selling it to? Does it depend on what your business is and where you're actually launching this product and how many countries you're in? Is it that complex or is it a simple answer that you must have it? Yeah, let's break it down. B2B companies will come up with a million excuses why not to do this. Our pricing is too complicated. People will get confused. We need our sales team to be able to, to demonstrate value first before they know the price to make sure that if our competitors see our pricing, they're going to undercut us and come in as if your competitors can't figure out your pricing on their own. <laughs> and a million other different excuses about why we shouldn't publish pricing on the website. All about what the company wants or what's easiest for them it has nothing to do with what the customer wants. Uh, the easiest way to determine whether or not you should do this, from my perspective, is you should ask your best fit ideal customers how they would like to buy. And I did this in 2017. 600 people answered the survey. We sent it out to far more people. 600 people at Target Accounts answered the survey. One of the questions in the survey is, what steps in the buying process would you like to complete before you talk to a sales rep? There was plenty of different things listed out. One of them was, I would like to know the price. And 93% of the people that responded to that thing that are decision makers at our target account said they would like to know the price before they talk to a sales rep. I think that's about as clear cut as it gets. Do you want your customers clearly telling you, this is what I want? Are you going to do what your customer wants? Or are you going to be selfish and think about yourself and what you want? That is your call. But this is a black and white answer. If you asked your customers, you would get a similar result because it is a fundamental preference for how people buy stuff today. It is not based on their industry or their age or a lot of other things. It is a fundamental shift in human behavior caused by the size and the scale and the maturity of the internet. You can decide whether you want to adjust your strategy to be based what on your customer wants or if you want to keep doing it the way that you want. But I'll give you a couple caveats of what's going to happen. So what happens when you don't publish pricing on your website? What's the first thing that someone's going to do? They're going to leave Google or they're going to leave your website. They're going to go to Google and they're going to search blah, 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 company price. Then you no longer have control of the information. It's whatever the internet decides to put out there. So there might be incorrect pricing information that's too high. It might be too low. There might be no information. So they just make an assumption that it's too expensive and they move on. They probably search that. And then one of your competitors is buying the number one Google ad against that. And they're saying, before you choose your company, come check out our company. And then they steal that demand because you were selfish and didn't give the customer what they wanted. They redirect that person to the website. They optimize the buying process. The person knows the price. They get a call booked with the rep right at that moment on their website. They have the call the next day. And that customer does not even consider you. You're not even in the deal anymore because you were selfish. Those are the things that are happening at a micro scale right now that are going to start to continue to happen more and more at a macro scale because let's just call it what it is. B2B buyers don't want to talk to your sales team any longer than what they need to. If you look at the sources of information that they trust when they make a buying decision, a sales rep is one of the lowest trust scores. And the reason is because the sales rep is biased. They make money based on whether or not they sell the deal. It's not complicated to anyone who's assessing the situation. It's hard for somebody that gets paid when they close a deal to be objective and give the person the best information for what they need. And I'm not saying the salespeople are bad. And I'm not saying that the comp plans are bad for that matter, even though I kind of think that way. What I am saying is that we need to understand how a buyer prefers to buy and the psychographics of when they make decisions and what they do. And we need to be able to meet all of those needs for the customer while also making it work for us. 
And it's incredibly simple. It's incredibly simple to think. And a lot of people struggle with this, that when we do what the customer wants, it also works out better for us. If we did what the customer wants, we'd have pricing on the website. They would be able to book a meeting right away if they were firmographically qualified with a true solutions consultant or someone that can solve their business problem and speak educated. We would not do bullshit qualification calls for 15 minutes that provide no value. We would not do all of the push email automated nurture when we send you through a 30 uh, email sequence over the next two months. And then if you don't answer my 49th email, I'm going to send you a breakup email and make you feel like a bad person for not answering my automated spam. (laughs) We would not do any of that shit. But that's a lot of the things that we do in B2B. It really just comes down to actually we do that. It's interesting. I think this will be a good parallel for people. We do this well, at least good enough in product development in SaaS. We have product managers and we have product marketers and we go out and we do market research, qualitative and quantitative. We listen to customers. We do price elasticity testing. We do this stuff. We listen to customers when we build our product. We need to do the exact same thing when we build and optimize our go-to-market. We need customer signals coming in in a reliable way to guide strategic decisions in what we do. There's almost none of that happening in B2B companies right now. That needs to be something that is a input to decide how we do pricing. We shouldn't be deciding whether we put pricing on our website in the boardroom, just like we shouldn't decide what feature we're going to build in the boardroom. We should decide what feature we're going to build and what whether pricing is going to be on the website based on the objective customer insight streams that we've been able to collect. I love thinking about stuff that way. I mean, do you think some of this comes back to fear, right? And as metrics change, some of this will change, right? Because if you put pricing on the website and you're spending all this money in digital and people come and they they get there and they're like, oh, that's too expensive, but I want it. You don't get that MQL that comes all the way through. Someone doesn't get to talk to them and disclose them and that's someone else's problem because they go to it. They're like, as those metrics change, I guess some of those discussions will change because when people are getting tagged with MQLs, uh, what matters if you're in marketing, getting them to that point where they get disqualified later means you've done your job. Yeah, this is another key. If you think about process optimization, you could really think about putting pricing on the website as a way to allow the customer to self-qualify whether or not they're going to buy. So what's better for the company? A buyer that can't afford the product but doesn't know the price that then goes and talks to an SDR and then maybe gets into an AE opportunity before they figure out that they can't buy and you've wasted those people's time. Or they come in, they see the price, they say, I can't afford this, it's not my budget, and they don't leave. The metrics in a company incentivize the MQL, the meeting, and the qualified opportunity, even though it's not good for the company. Exactly. So that is the exact breakdown here is that it's almost not fear of changing. It's that the metrics that you use handcuff you to do certain things that aren't customer centric. That is a better way of putting it, 100%. Yeah, you kind of get stuck. The way we look at it drives that behavior. I'm guilty of that 100%. Not a conversation I was hugely involved with, but we're humans. Yeah, all the metrics we were driving in, in all the companies I've run over the last 15 years have been driven down that pathway. And so you want as much going through as you can. And like I said, from an efficiency standpoint, as you're growing your company, all you'd be doing is papering over a crack, right? If there is an issue, you're not going to realize it until way later because your funnels are all going to look pretty. It's just a whole thing. I think I've been convinced. Because of how the metrics, let me try and explain this, because of how the metrics are set up, and maybe like this is better for a CFO than a founder, but hopefully you follow me here. It's like you have a manufacturing facility and you're getting your supply chain in, and then you have people building stuff and putting it together. And then two days go by before you realize that, hey, this thing is faulty and we can't use it anymore. So now we have to go all the way back to the beginning and build it again. And in B2B go to markets 99% of the time, even more than that, oftentimes, like 99.67% of the time, it gets halfway down the line to SMQL or SQL, and then they throw it out and they start over. And there's incredible waste that you can get away with when you have two reps and you spend 300K a year on marketing that you cannot get away with in this economy. When you have 20 reps, the whole model breaks. And so that's, I think, why we work in a certain segment of companies is because you don't feel the pressure of it until the investments are large enough and the ROI starts to break down. 100%. It's when you're really starting to scale that sort of 500 point, you realize, oh, well, yeah, 
that model, it does start to bow, right? And you're like, oh, I'm spending all this extra money, but I'm not actually getting that efficiency gain at the end where it's scaling in parallel to where I expect. And how are we going to keep driving 40, 50% year over year growth for our PE firm? Yeah. 100%. Just add 50% more budget every year and hope the marketing works out. That's not the solution. No, and it doesn't work that way. Yeah, Yeah, that's the interesting thing when you think about it as a true like executive or as an investor. Those numbers, like 40, 50% growth for a company that size is insane. Yeah, It's like really, really, really strong, big growth, a lot of headcount, big investments being deployed, big risks and bets. These companies are spending 15, 20 million dollars a year on marketing. And the executives are in the boardroom and they don't know if the mark, what part of the 20 million is working or if it's working. So, the, yeah, those are some things that I've been seeing lately. Yeah. All regs true. Sean, as we well know, would love you to take you through a quick fire round, Chris, now that we've got easy stuff out of the way. I love the fire rounds. Let's do it. Yeah. You're a Boston guy, so I know. I think I know this, but let's hear it from you. Favorite sports team? Gosh. So I'll, I'll stay loyal to the New England Patriots, although after Tom Brady left, it hasn't been the same. it's been a while now too yeah i I followed him to tampa bay but now he's retired so i'm kind of like reevaluating my team but right now i'd say it's the patriots man kansas city home's (laughs) your new brady favorite music genre chris gosh i would say uh either hip-hop or techno all right yeah another vote for hip-hop yeah, it's a split vote, dude. He said techno and yeah. pop. So you can only claim techno came, after, <laughs> techno came after pause. I'm just taking the hip hop. We'll edit the techno better. Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, favorite movie of all time? Um, gosh. Uh, so I would say that I don't really have one, but just to off the cuff, like I think that the screenplay and the dialogue in Inglorious Bastards is absolutely insane. I like that movie. I just think that it's a total masterpiece in some of those scenes. So yeah, I would, I've watched that movie quite a few times. I could say other like other ones, like there's some funny movies that yeah. I really love, but that's the first one that came to mind. Nice and fun. As well, like man. you, we're going to aggregate all this data and we'll have <laughs> interviewed more than 200 people and eventually we'll have a definitive list of which music genre is better, which it's coming. Real science, right? It's coming. It's coming. Favorite place to visit, Chris, or the place that you haven't been to yet mm, that you'd like to get to? I love going to Mexico. The people are so nice. The weather is amazing. Both coasts are great. It's really close to Texas, so it's like a weekend getaway. Yeah, Mexico is my jam right now. And this is the main one. This is definitely one we we are collecting all the data for, Chris. The main and the whole podcast is based around peanut butter. How do you like yours? Crunchy or smooth? So uh, I don't really consume peanut butter anymore. I think that there are some things in there that are not doing it for you. I think there's saturated fats and some other things. So if I do want the peanut butter flavor, I use the dried peanut butter. So it gives like the flavor, but it doesn't have a lot of the other stuff in it. Not really a peanut butter guy that much anymore, I guess. Uh, what about back in the day? <laughs> if you had to pick back in the day when you were a peanut butter guy, was it smooth or crunchy? What's an answer? Uh, back in the day, it was crunchy for sure. Yeah, there is an answer because there's a right and a wrong to this. So like eventually people come to the right, which is crunchy. Uh, fantastic. Hey, uh, this has been great, Chris. Thank you for sharing all your insight. Love the man. Amazing. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. This was fun.